0: Good morning. Just want to read us a scripture this morning. Who's excited about today? That was not good enough. Who is excited about today and what it means and what it represents for us, for you and I to be reconciled to the heart of the Father this morning? Um, our kids' message today is going to be the best day ever. And um, for you and I today really does hold this truth of the best day ever that could have ever happened for us. Um, It was all about the plan and the purpose and the love of God for us to be reconciled and restored to his heart. And this morning our heart and our hope for you is that you really will during our worship and during our time together will experience the peace of God. He is the Prince of Peace that you will experience the God of all hope. Well, maybe there are some situations that feel like they're hopeless and you've been facing that rock wall for a long season, that you will experience the God of hope. I love this scripture in Isaiah, and it is a prophecy of the Messiah coming long before he arrived, and it is this, it's Isaiah 9:6 and 7. For a child is born to us, The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Aren't you glad that this morning that the Heavenly Father made something amazing happen on mine and your behalf? And we live in an ever-increasing kingdom that when Jesus was born, it began the heart of God that was in a plan from everlasting And it will continue through everlasting. He is known as the everlasting father. So this morning we live within a kingdom that only increases and has only been increasing since the beginning. So will you stand with me this morning as we worship the king of majesty, the king of kings, the lord of lords. We celebrate his birth today as a baby, but... We honor Him today because He is the King who reigns on high in glory and majesty and honor and power. And He is enthroned on our praise this morning. So we are going to abandon all the distractions and the hurry and the bustle and whatever the plans are. And our focus this morning right now in this moment is to be present with the one who loves us more than anyone else. So Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your Holy Spirit to be the seal upon our hearts, Lord, of this great love that you have for us, Lord, that has stamped us, that has marked us, Lord. And God, we thank you that it is something that echoes through eternity, Lord. We worship you, King Jesus. We magnify you. We glorify you. We honor you. We exalt your name. This morning, you are worthy of praise and adoration. And we gather with angels around your throne this morning, Lord, and we worship you. We praise you. We bless you. It's in your great name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.
1: I could sing a song to get shy on me. But I know I believe in the power of the gospel still makes a. Break. Every generation
0: you have always been for us. Lord, you've always been for us. Lord, thank you that in Christ Jesus, your favor rests upon us, Lord. Lord, you cannot remove yourself from the great love that you have for us, Lord. It's not who you are. Lord, thank you for an everlasting, eternal plan, Lord, that was always in the heart of the Father. Lord, always in the heart of the Father, Lord, that you are for us in our coming, and our going, in our weeping, and our rejoicing, Lord, in every season, Lord, that you are for us. Lord, you are for me. You are not against me, Lord. Yeah, can you just say that out loud this morning? God, you are for me. You're for me. You're not against me. You are for me. Lord, thank you. Lord thank you that in this last year Lord in every circumstance you have been for me. You have been with me. Thank you Lord we worship you. Thank you Lord that you're blessing Lord upon the righteous your blessing for those who put their faith in Jesus Lord. Lord it is from generation to generation to a thousand generations Lord. Thank you this morning that we are a part of the thousand generation blessing because of Jesus, Lord. We live in it. We walk in it, Lord. We partake of it, Lord. It is who we are. It's what you've given us, Lord. God, we bless you this morning. The everlasting Father, eternal light, Lord. Lord, an eternal light that cannot be extinguished, that cannot be put out, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for your great kindness and favor towards us in Jesus this morning. We worship you, Lord. We love you. Thank you for the greatest gift that was ever given, Lord. It was the greatest sacrifice, Jesus. We worship you and we love you this morning. Amen. Amen. And. We want to welcome our new people. If you're a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for being with us. You can go to dothancf.com. And if you're watching online, we'd love to know how we can connect with you and connect with the story and our future together and what the Lord has for us. And um, coming up in January is going to be our Grace Teams. For those of you that are new and not really familiar, it's like, what is Grace Teams? Grace Teams is basically um, how we bring our gifts and how the Lord has wired us in our strengths To cause the body to build itself up in love. Other churches and organizations would call it volunteers. And so so that's what our, you know, how do I serve? How do I get plugged into serving in the church? That's what our grace teams are. So we'll have those ready and going up in January. And we're also, if you're new to us, we want to be able to bring you into membership and what that looks like, who we are. What do we expect from members and what do members and what can they expect from leadership? And so and how we do this thing called life together and build the kingdom of God. And so um, those are some things that you can keep and keep watch out for coming up. Go ahead and mark your calendars for some of those dates. And all the details will be online for you to get to be able to um, check out and put them on there and make a a mental note in your smartphone calendar. Okay. so um, and then there's the year end giving y'all is by December the 31st. So you can go to dothancf.com and give there as well. We're so thankful for all the generosity that occurs in this house. And so if you're planning and preparing and praying for where to give, how much to give, you can go to our website and do that. So um, if you're in person, you can give in the box up front with a check. We are going to dismiss our kids and our youth. And David's going to be right back with his message for um, Behold, a Savior is Born. And so um, we look forward to hearing that. And we'll be right back with you.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody. We are finishing up, as Karen said, a series called Behold, a Savior is Born. So we've been going for, this will be our fifth week. So Merry Christmas, everybody. We've made it. All the waiting's over. Uh, Hopefully you got all your shopping done, because if not, good luck. Um, (laughs) Good luck today. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I think most places typically close uh, in the late afternoon or early evening. Um, But I'm looking forward to it. I've been waiting for a long time. I love Christmas. I love the holidays. Uh, But so often around the holidays, we get uh, challenged with all the festivities and all the activity and all the things that are happening. We're kind of all aware of that. Uh, But sometimes we forget the greater truth behind Christmas. And that's kind of what this sermon series has been about. It's just kind of reminding us again and again, not just about Jesus' birth, but also about what his life was like and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And so we've been getting into that a little bit. Let me start with this. I heard a comedian talk about waiting. He said, <clears throat> that he had an aunt who retired after 40 years at the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, she waited on at least 12 people. <laughs> and he said also he had an ancestor who was in the first graduating class of Harvard in 1642. And last April, they paid off his student loan. <laughs> so the point is, waiting's hard. We kind of all know that. Um, whether Regardless of what you're waiting on, it's, it's hard. But it's even harder when you're a kid. I don't know about you guys, but I remember as a kid... Uh, time kind of felt different, seemed to take longer for things to happen, I guess because I had such a shorter lifespan and ha- didn't have anything to compare it to. <clears throat> but wait- waiting for Christmas seemed like it was going to be an eternity. It's interesting how that is, again, that reference point, how we're all different. And historically, we've always kind of been bad at waiting. Um, I read an anecdote about letters back in the uh, late 1700s and 1790s, so the early days of the American, you know, the the experiment that was America, that if you sent a letter from, you know, somewhere in the top of the colonies for it to get down to the bottom of the colonies took about 40 days. So think about, think about that now. Like, like, we get mad if a 10-minute if a oil change takes longer than five minutes. And so they had to wait 40 days for a letter to get to somebody. And it's like, you know, I can just see Clarence is like, you know, after 40 days, um, he's fine. That's the expectation. But 45 days, he's like, he's like, come on, Annabelle, you're ghosting me. Like, write me back, right? Like, at what point do you just get frustrated after 45 days or 50? I'm not real sure. But it's interesting how that has changed over, over time. But waiting has never been easy. And I can't imagine like um, God's people as they're waiting for this Messiah. You know, we talked about in the early parts of the series about the prophecies and the promises that a Messiah was coming. And they would read these prophecies over and over again and the waiting must have been intolerable at some point. And one way we know that's true, we can see it in the Psalms over and over again. There are these uh, poetic laments, um, some scholars call them. And it's just about how long the people of God had waited um, for God to come through and rescue them. You know, at the time of, of Jesus showing up, 400 years, the Bible says it had been 400 years without a prophet. So, so they were used to prophets speaking and promising. And even then, you know, there would, time to time, a new prophet would arise in the nation of Israel. And then 400 years of silence before John the Baptist shows up. And he becomes, as it were, even though he's in the New Testament, he becomes the last of the Old Testament prophets prophesying about Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. Six months older or thereabouts than, than Jesus himself, and prophesying um, these, that, that, God's, that the waiting was about to be over, that he's coming. Jesus said, I mean, John the Baptist said, he's coming. He's coming soon. And he's baptizing in the River Jordan. And I can't imagine that moment when you're standing around, and some of the disciples that Jesus had were disciples of John who were probably there at some point in this moment when Jesus was baptized by John, right? And so so now there's, the Bible says that from heaven comes, you know, this voice. And then the Holy Spirit, you know, comes and and sits on him like a dove and stays there, which was unusual. The Holy Spirit was known for coming upon men and then departing, you know, before the new covenant, before people's hearts and minds were changed, um, their natures were changed. But as we read through the Old Testament scriptures, what we see is over and over again, that Israel had had felt like that God had forgotten about them. Have you ever been there? Like where you feel like, Lord, there's been these promises that you've made, this sense of what good you're going to bring to me, and somehow you've forgotten about them. But we know as we read the Old Testament, we we know that in the process of the waiting, God wasn't just working in Israel, but he was working through them in the waiting. So it's interesting you see this. You see them learning how to rely on God in the wilderness time. You see, he was forming them into a faithful people in the temple, in the time of the temple. And he was building them into a great nation because he had designed this nation to represent God to the whole earth. He, He had picked out a nation, not because this nation was better than others, but because he had just chosen this nation. He said, from this nation, I'm going to talk about and I'm going to represent the Messiah to the whole world. I'm going to show the world what it looks like when God dwells among them. So it's a beautiful story. So God's always up to something. This is something we know. He doesn't do anything without purpose. He's always um, doing something on purpose. And so you see this long awaited incarnation in Christmas where um, <clears throat> Mary gives birth to Jesus in a stable in Bethlehem. She wraps him, the Bible says, in cloth, lays him in a manger, just as the prophets had foretold. So you see all this happening. And then you see Jesus grow into a man, his faithfulness to the law. He never broke the law one single time. And taught into all of his, all the way through his years of ministry, and then the Bible says he was obedient all the way up to death. He was obedient to die on the cross. That you remember in, in the garden, he says, "Father, if this can pass, if this this could pass from me, this cup, this bitterness that I have to drink, if this could pass from me, boy, I'd really like that." But he said, "Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine." And what he was saying was, "There's an obedience, God." was asking him to go to the cross, and he said yes. So he was obedient even to his death. And then after his death, the Bible said they laid him in a tomb, and for three days the world held its breath. And we know, because we celebrated at Easter, that then Jesus arose from the dead, and nothing was ever the same again. He appeared to his disciples, we read this story, and then he was taken up into heaven to be with the Father. But he promises the disciples, when it, this happens, that he would one day return. He says, I'm coming back. And this is a, you see this in Acts chapter 1. And it's really interesting. It says, after saying, this is Acts chapter one, verse nine. It says, after saying this, talking about Jesus, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. If you go read different versions of that, it's interesting. It said a cloud hit him. He was taken into the cloud. He was, you know, he got lost. I mean, there's a bunch of different versions, but basically it all has something to do with the cloud. Something about the cloud. Jesus went into the clouds. And I, and I find that interesting. I mean, it's, a, it's a, you know, when the Bible does something like that, And it makes a point about something that seems arbitrary. Like I said, God is never arbitrary. He's always doing something on purpose. Verse 10 says, as they strained to see him rising into heaven. This is the New Living Translation, so it's a paraphrase. It says, as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. So here's, uh, the story is, there's 11 men, because remember Judas did what Judas did, (laughs) and they are yet to replace him. So he's standing there, and he's looking up into heaven, Uh, These 11 men are looking up into heaven, and they're straining. They're like, he goes up into the clouds, and they're like waiting and waiting and waiting. And at some point, they're like, he said he was coming back again. Like, it's been five minutes, right? (laughs) And they're waiting so much so. This cracks me up. The the Bible says that God sent two angels. That's these two white-robed men who stood among them. Like, literally, they're staring up in the sky And these guys start talking. And can you imagine the surprise? (laughs) When they look around, they're like, you know, there was just 11 of us before and now there's more, right? This is what it says. They suddenly stood among them and they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? That's a good question, isn't it? Why are you waiting? What are you waiting for right now? He says, why are you staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. And listen to this part. But someday, It's an interesting word, someday, right? Heard that from the Lord a lot. Someday, um, he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Isn't that interesting? Like he's like, so it's not just that someday he's going to come back and who knows what that's going to look like. The Bible goes to tremendous extremes to explain exactly what that's going to look like, right? In his second coming. We call this season the Advent season, the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of you know, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, the arrival. And there's a second Advent. The second Advent is the second arrival, the second coming of Christ. And we hear about that sometime in church world. But just like that, Jesus was gone. And the Bible says he's going to return just as he left. So now there's a new season of waiting that occurred. So there was a waiting for the Messiah, There was a season where the Messiah was here. There's interesting stories where it talks about Jesus as a baby and then there's a big jump and then he's 12 years old in the temple and he's surprising the teachers with his wisdom and his understanding of who the father is. Go figure, right? And then it jumps into his ministry later on. And so we don't know much about the the time in between, right? There's lots of stories, the Gospel of Thomas. There's a bunch of so-called gospels out there, so-called stories about Jesus in the interim. Um, and and the truth is none of those things are are worthy of canon, worthy of being in the Bible. They're they're, they're hard to prove. You know, At one point, Jesus um, raises a bird from the dead in one of the Gospels, and I'm like, oh, that's cute, but probably not true. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying you can't rely on it. So the Bible is very clear. There were seasons of waiting, even in his childhood, and then all the way up to his adult ministry, and then he ministers for three years, and four Gospels cover that. The gospels it's not telling, it's not giving exact, an exact representation, although it is. It's not necessarily historical, although Luke really goes to great extent to make it historical because he was a doctor and he cared about the details and he got all those things right. So Luke and Acts and the book of Acts were considered kind of one volume of the history of, of Jesus in his ministry and the history of Jesus ascending, because that's where the scripture talks about that. And then he comes, you know, it talks about him coming back. And then there's this whole ministry of what happens now after that moment where they're all staring into the sky and the angels came and say, don't you have something to do? (laughs) Aren't you supposed to be occupying until he comes? Aren't you supposed to be busy right now? And so they go after that. And so what you see is this, the whole, the whole Testament, the new Testament and the old Testament are saturated, saturated with the prophecies of his advent. And that's really Advents plural, more than one. His first coming and then the second coming. And so let me give you kind of an idea of that. So the references, especially in the Old Testament, one scholar estimated that there are eighteen hundred and forty-five references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament alone. So not just the first. Remember, there's lots of prophecies. We talked about that in one of the series about the the prophetic, you know, promise, the address of the Messiah and how specific it was. And if we took eight prophecies, how how incredibly Uh, statistically challenging it could be just to get eight prophecies true in one man and there are over 300 prophecies about the first advent in Jesus. But it talks about this, 1,800 prophecies about Jesus coming back the second time. And one reason why I think the Jews missed him, there's lots of reasons, but one reason why is 1,845 prophecies about him coming back the second time and what that's going to look like and just maybe 300 or so about how he's going to come the first time. So there was a whole lot more information about that second coming. And so in so many ways, they just missed the first one. But now he's come. And now he's gone back up into heaven. And now there's waiting again. And we all find ourselves there now in the waiting. First coming, the first advent, and now the second advent is coming soon. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. And out of that 260 chapters, 318 references to the second advent of Christ. That's a lot. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. In those uh, chapters of the New Testament, the references, one out of every 30 verses, think about that for a second, reference the second coming of Christ. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight which look forward to his second. Ever think about that? We celebrate Christmas, and we wonder why we celebrate Christmas. Um, we celebrate Christmas because my wife's teaching this in the kids' church um, t- this morning, the greatest day ever, right? Why? Because the promise of something was coming, and when Jesus showed up, it set some things into motion. Like you know, there's 33 years or thereabouts of his ministry, and then he dies on a cross, right? And it's and it's interesting that even the way he died was prophesied from the Old Testament long before that manner of execution was even used, especially made popular by the Romans, right? And so it's very interesting. How When you see this, this happening, the promises coming true, there are moments of intensity, and then there's long, long times of waiting. So I wonder what the waiting's for. Now, I don't know about you, but I've discovered this. If you've been a believer for any length of time, there's a profound truth that you discover, and that's this, that God is in the journey as much or more as he is in the destination. Let me say that again. God is in the journey as much or more as he is in in the destination. Jeremiah twelve five. there's this interesting passage. This is a prophet, one of the prophets, promising about God's, what God's gonna do in the earth, his redemption plan. And so Jeremiah 20, 12, five, God speaks to him and challenges Jeremiah because Jeremiah has gotten impatient. He's like, I wanna see the things of God come to pass. I've, I've heard those in my spirit. Um, I, I've prophesied about them. I know they're true and yet now I've, I've said them out loud and they're, they're here, but they're not here yet. So the promises, and we feel all that. Again, we feel the promises that the Lord has made us. Promises about relationships, promises about, you know, him being a provider, promises for healing when we dealt with sickness, all those things. And we're looking at this and going, God, are you ever going to come through? And Jeremiah was in that same place. He was waiting for God to come and fix all the wrong things to redeem everything. And he reads, this is what he says, God says to him. He says, if you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? It's a parable, right? But it's interesting how he finishes it. He said, if you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And so I I remember the first time I read that, I was like, I feel like that should mean something, but I have no idea what that means. I got a sense of, you know, of, of Jeremiah's impatience and then a sense of God challenging that impatience and going, hey, it's about the journey too. Like, I know you're ready for the destination, but I'm doing something in the journey and I'm pointing out that you are missing what I'm doing in the journey, right? So here's what's interesting about that passage, the thickets by the Jordan. Listen to that again. He says, um, if you stumble in the safe country, in other words, if you, if you are screwing it up when it's easy, you're gonna, you're gonna make a mess of things when it gets hard. So maybe take a little time, let me work in you so that I can work through you, right? Let me work on your character and who you are and your identity and all those things. Let let Maybe let me fix you before you go decide to fix the world. A famous psychologist of our day, Jordan Peterson, some of you guys know who he is. He's very popular on YouTube. He made an interesting statement. He wrote the uh, 12 rules for life. He borrowed all of them from the Bible, by the way, and he'll tell you that. But um, one of the rules was, um, if you, before you go change the world, clean up your room. <laughs> and he said, I wrote that especially to young men. Why is, it, why is it young men don't like cleaning up their room, right? I remember my, my brother came to live with us. He was, after my mom passed away, we were living in Texas. And he was 15 when we set out, and he, was, and he turned 16 along the way. And so now here's a 16-year-old you know, young man living with Karen and I. I'm 27, I think, so, so I'm 11 years older than him, so I, I'm doing the math. On the fly. So anyway, he had his own room, and uh, and because he had gone through such a traumatic, you know, childhood, um, Karen and I were careful not to give him too much in responsibility. So, but it was interesting. um, The one thing he had to do was vacuum. That's the one job he had because we had people in the house all the time as pastors. They were constantly coming and going, and he would just he was he hated it, and so he would vacuum and he'd tell Karen how stupid it was and how there's no dirt on the floor, of course. And the first time he empties the vacuum, you know, and it's full of dirt. He's like, where did all this come from? <laughs> it's like, that was in the carpet. He's like, that's amazing. That's incredible. And so he, he didn't have much to do, the vacuum. And then the other thing he had to do was keep his room clean. And so one morning I came in there, he was late for school. And I was like, hey man, you're gonna, you're gonna miss your bus. Um, can I help you get ready? You know, I'm trying to be a good older brother and not be his dad, but I'm like, and he throws, I mean, literally, I walk in the door, his, his room is a mess, and he reaches into the closet and he, and he grabs something and he throws it at me, which is already terrifying, but I, I catch it, which I shouldn't have done, but I caught it and it was a shirt and it was, and it was so wrinkled, it looked like it had been stuffed into a thimble for about three years, you know what I mean? And just pulled out and it was just like, it, what, there wasn't any place on it that was flat. It was all wrinkles. And this is what he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, Hey, smell that and tell me if it stinks too bad to wear one more day. And then I read about Jordan Peterson telling young men to clean up their room before they go change the world. And it's saying the same thing. It's saying, I I love that you have aspirations for what's coming, right? And that's true. There's truth in my my brother. There's greatness in my brother. And, And the aspiration for that greatness, though, has to be discovered. It has to be solidified. It, he's becoming something in the process. And so often we forget that. And so what's really interesting about that passage, it says, if you stumbled in the, in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? So the thickets by the Jordan, Karen and I have been there in Israel, been to Jordan. And there really are. they are thickets. They're almost like jungle. One version of the Bible calls it jungle. It's not. But but it's so thick that it was renowned and, and uh, known for Uh, lion attacks because the lions could hide in the thickets and you couldn't see them until you got close enough and then they would jump out and they would attack you and you would die and so that's what he's saying he's saying hey as you grow into what you're going to become you are not yet ready for the lions but you think you are right right you ever, you ever see this with kids? I can do this myself. We had a friend, had a little girl that she went in the kitchen um, and got out. She decided she was going to have cereal. She went in and got the bowl and she poured the cereal in the bowl. And the cereal went all over the kitchen, of course. And then, um, <laughs> then she decided she's going to pour the milk in. And so she got out a, you know, a full gallon of milk and she poured the entire gallon of milk into her bowl on the floor. And so obviously it just covered the entire floor. And I remember they, they said, she, her name was Sasha, and their, her parents said, Sasha is amazing in so many ways, but she does not yet know what she will know. <laughs> and I was like, that's true. But at six years old, she was doing the laundry. Her, her job was to climb inside the dryer. She literally would climb in the dryer and get out the clothes, right, And especially her clothes. And she would take them into her bedroom. And she would put them on her bed. And she would fold them all very neatly. And she would put them away. She was doing that at like five or six years old. Now she's a grown woman. She's pretty amazing, of course. But the whole point is, there's a process. There's a journey. And that's the part that we forget. And so God was challenging this prophet's impatience. He's saying, I've shown you some things. And those things are true. But the not yet part is almost as important, if not as important, as what's about to happen. Because something happens in the journey. So God gives the journey to teach us faith, to refine our character, to develop our competencies. Just as a side note, let me say it this way. So often when we say, you should become more like Jesus, right? What we hear in that is we hear, I should be like Jesus in his character. Jesus probably didn't lie. Much, you know. I'm sure, you know. No, he didn't lie at all. So, you know, he didn't do anything. So, I'm supposed to grow up in him like character. But Jesus, when when he took his disciples away, he didn't just teach them about becoming like him in his character. He taught them about becoming like him in his competencies as well, to become like Jesus. This is fascinating. When when the thousands of, of people are fed by the fishes and the loaves and the little boy, you read that story, and it gets to the point where the disciples realize everybody's getting hungry. Jesus obviously doesn't understand administration, so they're going to teach him. They come to him, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, but the people are hungry, and there's a whole lot of them, and it's not like we have a McDonald's, so you, know, they need, to, you need to let them go home or whatever, right? And so it's interesting what he said next. He said, you feed them. <laughs> now think about that for a second. Like they, He knew they didn't have anything to feed those people with, so what was he doing? He was saying to them, there's, there's possibilities. In this journey, you you don't know yet what you ought to know. And I'm trying to teach you that. I'm trying to show you that you keep asking me to do things. And what I'm trying to tell you is I am giving you the power to do those things yourself. Now, sometimes we turn that into the American motto of pulling myself up by my bootstraps. And if we're not careful, we get caught up in the law by doing that. We're going to do hard. We're going to strive. We're going to do harder. We're going to work harder. We're going to do better, right? We're going to turn over a new leaf. And all we prove is that we don't have the ability to do that. So there's a difference between trying to save ourselves and taking what God is trying to do inside of us and realizing the truth of that and letting it become who we are. So it's interesting, but he calls us to refine our character, but also our competencies. And he is equipping us for the greater challenges that lie ahead. He's saying if you, if you stumble in the safe country, what's going to happen when you get into the country where the lions will attack you? Right? I feel like that's what God is doing with us today. Like, we've had a season as Americans where, for the most part, we were a Christian nation. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are no longer a Christian nation. We haven't been for a long time. So now we're like Babylon in many ways and growing more like that every day, which is always crazy when I have conversations with Christians and are like, did you see what happened in the news? I did. My question to you is, why are you surprised that worldly people are acting worldly? <laughs> right? Why are you surprised at that? So then, you know, you can be all surprised in that. And then, and here's the danger of it we see that we're better than them because Jesus has done some work in us, right? And so then we look down our noses and we condemn them for, for doing what we used to do ourselves, right? And the, the way Jesus kind of goes after it in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in his gospels. So the whole challenge then is hey, God's trying to do something, He's trying to work something in you. Why? He has a plan. There's something he's doing inside of you that that is supposed to make a difference to the world around you. So Jesus comes, and so often you see this. There's a bright light that shines, right? In the darkest of the night with the shepherds, this brilliant light occurs, John talks about it, you know, about Jesus in, that he came into the darkness. It was dark. It was, you know, Genesis. It was dark. It was void of light. And then a great light came, you know, and God's light. And everything is about God showing up into the darkness and displacing the darkness. But what is it that we think that you and I are, as Christians are supposed to do? Are we supposed to be, you know, we, we sit in our monastery And we um and meditate on the goodness of God and how amazing he is to us while all those heathen people go to hell because, you know, they're evil and they're bad, (laughs) right? And if we're not careful, we buy into that lie. And then what we become as a church is we become a subculture. We become a culture that has no bearing, has no reason to exist in the culture that we have. And then we begin to be mocked. And don't get me wrong, even if we do it right, we're going to get mocked. We're going to get challenged. But isn't it interesting that Christians loved to hang out with Jesus, but they really didn't like the Pharisees? So what was the difference? Jesus was holy. He was the real deal. He had never done anything wrong. So why is it that they loved him? Because he challenged them in their sin. If you go read his stories, he never didn't say what needed to be said, right? Right? But he said it differently because he said it with a heart of love because the whole reason he existed was to come and pay for the sin that was keeping them disconnected from him. So he saw their redemption as something he came to pay for. He was the light to shine in their darkness. So it's not like he didn't acknowledge the darkness, but he just became the light. And I think that's a lesson that we all could go after. This is 1 John 3, 2 in the New Living Translation. Again, not... It's not a translation, even though it says New Living Translation. It's a paraphrase, and that's helpful when you're studying the Bible because sometimes it gets it wrong. But what it does is it tries to open up and, and create a better picture culturally of what, how our language works today, and this is what it says. It says, Dear friends, this is John, one of the disciples. Dear friends, we are already God's children. So he, in their claim to Jesus and trusting in him for what he did on the cross, he said, Because of those things, we are God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. So remember, Christ has already appeared. Messiah has already come in the first Advent. So now John is talking about something that's going to happen in the second Advent. Then when he appears, it says, we don't yet know. We are still on the journey of what we're going to become. What it's going to look like, we have some inkling of it. And we long for that, and the truth is we can have that here and now, and Jesus can work inside of us, and we can live holy, the Bible says in Peter, in this present dark world, right? So it goes on, it says, he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. So Jesus is going to return. And this is a fascinating, again, it's a fascinating scripture. You see it, kind of pointed out in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This is Revelation 1-7. And again, pay attention to this. It's very interesting. He says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Remember when he went up and they're staring at the clouds? And they're like, wow, he's gone away and it's been five minutes. When is he coming back? And so now John is an old man on the Isle of Patmos writing this. You know He was probably in his, in his early teens or mid-teens when he was the disciple that Jesus loved, which I love John saying that. But he said he remembers this. He was there. He watched Jesus go up in the sky as a teenager. And then he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And John saw all kinds of crazy stuff happen. He's gone all over the known world. He's preached the gospel. He's seen signs and wonders and miracles. He's seen the advent of Jesus living inside of him come to the world around him. He's been the light to the Gentiles because Jesus is the light inside of him. And he says, look, the second coming, he's coming in the clouds. In the same way, remember the angel? In the same way he left, he's coming again. He says this, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's interesting. And all peoples on earth will mourn the cause of him. That's an interesting thing because remember on the, on the day he shows up, the Bible says in the first advent, it says joy. All kinds of joy is happening. Why? Because Jesus is goodwill towards all men. He, he, my wife says it this way, all men have been reconciled. In other words, the re- work of reconciliation has been done by Jesus. All men have been reconciled, but not all men have been redeemed. Why? Because there's the part that we play, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But this scripture is really interesting. Every eye will see him. In in, in the original language, that word is really interesting. It it goes after, it it, it basically says every eye and every person on the entire planet is going to see Jesus returning in the clouds. He's gonna come riding on a white horse in the clouds and everybody's gonna see it. And so I asked that question, how is everybody gonna see it? Now, here's what's interesting. For thousands of years, this scripture was used to mock and disprove the Bible because after all, how in the world is everybody going to see Jesus show up in the clouds? I mean, what happens if you're on the other side of the planet? I mean, how are you going to see him if he shows up in the clouds? And then I pull out this thing, which is basically a television in my pocket. Remember when, you're, remember when your uh, math teacher said, it's not like you're going to have a calculator with you everywhere you go. Remember that? Remember those days? All of us vintage people, right? Remember that? <laughs> And I'm like, not only do we have a calculator, so take that, Ms. Velsky, but not only do we have a calculator, right? <laughs> but we've got a we've got a TV that's connected to the entire world, the internet, which has only been possible recently. I mean television only came out, the ability for TV only came out in the mid-20s. First wide the wide widest level of television broadcast occurred in 1937 when King George VI, this was this is the recent queen who passed away, you know. Um, <clears throat> Queen Elizabeth, this was her father. And his coronation in 1937 was the first time that TV was used. It was the first time that TV was actually something that was recorded outside because they couldn't control the light enough before. And so the, his coronation was seen by, by literally millions of people, right? They estimated, like when his, his daughter eventually became the, king, uh, became the queen in 1952, when her dad passed away, they estimated that 27 million people saw her coronation. So in his day, um, again, very few people saw it because it wasn't very, you know, widely used. And then Queen Elizabeth's funeral in September of 2022, just recently, they estimated that over 4 billion people saw that funeral at the same time. See, that's, you know, 4 to 5 billion was the estimate. That's the half at least of the entire population of the world saw something at the same time. So how's it going to happen? I don't know for sure, but I would imagine there's going to be an alert. (laughs) Like we get those that's trying to tell us that, you know, a kid's been abducted, which we're thankful for. It's a reason why it's there, something important. And here's the thing. When he comes back, he won't come back as a baby. Because when we see him, when every eye sees him, now every eye is going to see him Accurately. Whatever they thought about Jesus, you know, I use the joke all the time about the six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. You know, he's my favorite. He's my favorite Jesus. We all have a favorite Jesus. Some people have a Jesus that will never send anybody to hell. You know, he's not. He's not going to judge anybody because he's Jesus. So we just create a Jesus. We create a God in our own mind. And so when Jesus comes back, the Bible says when he comes again the second time, every eye will see him, and every eye will see him accurately. He's no longer going to be a helpless baby in a manger but a conquering king. He's coming back as the Messiah, the Jews first imagined, this conquering warrior king who comes back to put at rest every evil and every darkness. The Messiah, the first Jews imagine, is going to come on a white horse. He's going to be all powerful. He's going to be mighty in battle. He's going to be the king of all kings. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is this Lord. That the Jews and the prophets of old have prophesied and promised us for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, all of this is going to come in a culmination. And there's going to be no longer any tears. There's going to be no longer any sorrow. There's going to be no longer any pain. All the tears the Bible says is going to get wiped away. We preach this at funerals, but we really need to preach it at Christmas. (laughs) So here's the thing. If that's true, and we know that it is, and prophecy goes to great extremes to tell us that, what would it look like to live each day as if he could come back today? We wouldn't mourn because, again, when he came, this is what happens. We won't mourn as believers because when he came the first time, he came as a Savior, and we trusted him as such. But the second time he comes, he's not coming as a Savior. All that work has been done, the cross, all that's been done. Now he's coming as a judge. And so it's interesting because Scripture goes to great extent, the Bible goes to great extent to prophesy of his first coming. Why? Because God doesn't wish that anybody should perish. So he sends a Savior and he says all the work's going to be done. And he speaks into this in beautiful ways. And then he trusts us to make a decision. And everybody gets to make that decision. So we have to live ready because in the end we will all give an account for our life. Not the way most people think because most people think it's about judging between good and evil or good and bad. It's like a scale. We put more good on one side, you get to go to heaven. If there's more bad on the other side, you get to go to hell. But that is not at all what scripture teaches. We will be judged on what we have done with the truth of Jesus. What he did on the cross is grace and mercy poured out on our behalf. That's what he's going to judge us on. And all of scripture teaches us this truth. It's why God made such a big deal about his first advent, because in the second advent, he's coming as a judge. In the first, he comes as a savior. So then the law, what's the law got to do with it? Because the law teaches this principle too. The law is, this is what God looks like. He's perfect. He's 100% right and good. There's no shadow of turning in him. He is, this is the standard. The law is a picture of God and his standing. And to come into God's presence, you must do all of this 100% of of your time for all of your life. You can never miss, as James says, in even one point. And so the law was, was given to do a certain thing, but it wasn't designed to save us. That's what the Savior came to do. But here's, how, here's what that looks like, because this is important to know. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law. In other words, doing the right things doesn't make you right with God. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Doing the right thing will not make you right. All of the religions in the world, except Christianity, have a way for you to work out your own salvation. And Christianity is different. It's the one religion with a Savior. It's the one religion that says you cannot save yourself. You must trust in someone else. Again, the law represents God's standards. This is James. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. See how that works? You can't just do most of it, which is what most of us think. The law was a tutor. This is what it was designed to do. It says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Why? So that we might be justified by faith. It was showing us something. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the tutor. The law was trying to teach us something. It's teaching us we cannot do it in our own strength. And then John three seventeen. this is kind of wraps it up. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. Because we all know John three sixteen. but not many of us know this passage that comes right after it. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. Now we think he did. Isn't that what I've been saying? That God is judging the world. But the truth is in the scripture, all he's doing is acknowledge what is already true. So listen to it. For God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever believes in what Jesus did. When people say, um, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not about, we've made it about good and bad, and God's always made it about dead and alive. And this is how you come back to life. He says, whoever believes in him is not judged, but whoever doesn't believe stands judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here's one of the biggest challenges about preaching in the South. We preach to people who are under the law and think they're saved because they've been taught most of their life to do the right thing. Now, here's the the beauty about that. That's actually helpful if we make use of it. When we say, how are you doing with the right thing? Most people say, you know, if I'm honest, not so well. So my next question is, what does that tell you about you? (laughs) It tells you that you can't. Aren't you glad there's a Savior who did it for you on your behalf? So then what's your job? Not to try to do the right thing. You've shown you can't do that. It's to trust in the one who did the right thing on your behalf and then gives you his righteousness, his right standing with the Father. He gives you as a gift. That's what a Savior does. He saves us from our sin, our brokenness, our lostness, our condemnation. The wrath of God abides upon us. It settled on us. Why? Because I haven't believed in the one who could come and take away all my sin because he lived perfectly and then he died my death on the cross. And then when he came alive again, he proved that it was finished, it was complete, and now all of his righteousness is given to me as a gift. So we're going to talk about this a little bit next week. How would you live if you believed that completely? When the enemy came and said, you know what? You're just not living up to, to the standard. You can look him right in the eye and go, well, thank God somebody did for me. Or you can go, you're right. Woe is me. I'm never going to live up. To, I'm never going to amount to anything. Just like my dad said, you're never going to amount to anything. I believe the lie. Why? Because I don't believe in what Jesus has done for me. So here's what scripture says. Don't grow weary in the waiting. Why? Because in this process of grace, this process of Jesus comes to save me and rescue me, the law begins to teach me that I can't save myself. And then when I trust in Jesus, what begins to happen is I realize that it was never about wrong and right. I'm gonna get in so much trouble if you put that on Twitter. <laughs> it was always about the fact that I could not live up to the standard. And then the next thing is the beauty of the gospel is, even though I didn't and couldn't live up to the standard, God loved me so much and wanted to be with me so much that he paid that price himself so that I could be with him. How do you not glorify and worship and honor and love a savior like that? The answer is when you understand it, you, you live differently. You begin to live in and before you know it, You're fulfilling the law without trying. Why? Because you're living a relationship with Jesus. You're hearing him and his voice to you, which is what he's always intended to do, which is when he became God incarnate and he came and he lived among us, with the whole idea behind that was to be God with us. That was the whole point of him being here is to be in relationship. But let me ask you this. How many of you guys on a regular basis just have a conversation with God? Or do you feel like, you know, I've not done well, So it's unfair, it's not right for me to have a conversation. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about what would you live like if grace were really true. Here's a big one we're going to talk about next next week. How would you pray if your prayers being answered weren't dependent on how well you've done? That's worth thinking about, right? So we can't grow weary, why? Because when we grow weary, we start thinking about the problems and the challenges and the waiting, what we want to do is we want to throw in the towel and we want to quit. And then we start praying, Jesus, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Nothing wrong with that prayer at all unless it's a prayer of escape. Because <laughs> the whole point wasn't so I could go be with Jesus one day. It was Jesus came and he is with me now. That's the whole point. I have him in me right now. And so that's the beautiful thing. The challenge is we're counting down. You know, if you stand in the line at the DMV, you know what it feels like to Wait when you're waiting for water to boil on the, on, on the stove, when you're waiting to open presents on Christmas, you're like, ah, it's taking forever. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews writes to this point, and I'm gonna be wrapping up with this. This is Hebrews nine twenty eight. He says, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. He's basically saying the consummation is coming, right? In a sense, the Bible paints a picture of us being in a relationship with Jesus as being engaged, but not having consummated the marriage yet. When you hear Jesus say, I go away to prepare a place for you, that was bridal language to the Hebrews. He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. So what he would do, rich men would go and build a place, a home, if you will, a a palace, that, is, that was so amazing because they wanted to bring their bride back into it so that she could, that, would, that could be the place that she dwells with him. The environment, everything about it was to glorify and, and to, to magnify the relationship that that man had with this bride. And so the Bible says that he leaves when, when he would leave, he would leave attendance of the bride. That's what the fivefold ministry gifts are. We've talked about this before. But he leaves attendance of the bride. Why? To help her become everything that she's supposed to be so that when she comes and, she, and she's with finally with the king, that she is radiant in her beauty, in white linen, white gowns. So he would teach her, uh, if he had a dressmaker, he would teach her not just to wear beautiful dresses, but how to make them perfectly for her for herself. If, if he had a swordsman, he wouldn't just have that swordsman protect her. He would teach her how to use the sword, right? And, and they would come in and they would challenge the bride to step into all the fullness that she was because this is the one who's chosen her. It's a beautiful picture. So here's the question. In this process, are you eagerly awaiting Jesus to come again? Does it ever cross your mind? Do you live as if it's true and imminent? Or does this world hold such a fascination that you don't want to let it go? If there's something in this world that has your attention more than Jesus, you're missing something. Not because the things in this world aren't beautiful, and and God made many of those things for us. When I see a sunrise, when I go into the mountains, when I'm standing looking at the ocean, I'm amazed and I'm, 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 I'm blown away by the glory of God in his creation. So he designed us to love those things but never to love the creation more than the creator. So he's drawing us to himself. So as we celebrate the first advent and await the second, let's remember that God is working in our waiting. Luke 19.10 says he's inviting us into something. There's another reason for the waiting, not just to develop the character and and, and who, who we've been made to be, but it says in Luke 19, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's you and me, but it's not just you and me. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way. Same thing, coming after us. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. This is seeking and, and saving the lost. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The old life of selfishness and your own desires and what you want is gone. And now new desires have arisen inside of you. And it goes on, it says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. All of this, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He, he loves to gift you. He loves to bless you. He loves to pour his goodness into you. But you have to let go of what the world says that is and grab hold of what he says that is. And it's different. And so we can be made new, redeemed, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We've been brought back from the slavery of sin and brokenness. The old has been made new. It's a gift. We can't earn it. And you have to receive it. Just because it's been given doesn't mean that you haven't received it. So here's the second part of that passage, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ. So remember the first advent. What did he come for? He was in Christ doing something, reconciling the world to himself. Listen to this. No longer counting people's sins against them. What? What? an incredible set of good news. He is no longer holding your sin against you. If that, if you could capture that thought alone, it would change the way you think about everything. It goes on, it says, and he gave this wonderful message of reconciliation to us. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead to people, come back to God. Behold, a savior is born to redeem us, to reconcile us. Because of what he's done and our belief in him, he no longer holds our sin against us. And we get the greatest joy of sharing that good news with the people around us. Think about this. I love doing this at the coffee house. Somebody says, hey, I have a question and they know I'm a pastor and they sit down and they ask the question and every question they ask really comes down to, does God hold my sin against me? And I get all the time to share the good news and say, you know what's really interesting? Because what Jesus did, he doesn't hold your sin against you anymore. Now you can keep it. You can hold it against yourself. You can try to do the right thing. You can try to do better. You can try to live up to the standard. You're never going to do it. Or you can trust in the one who did it for you. It's a choice. What are you going to do with what Jesus did? Enjoy God so much on the journey that you long to take someone else with you. Amen? Would you stand with me so we close out this series? My prayer is that we would see him accurately. One day, the Bible says he's going to come on the clouds. And what's beautiful about that is we can see all the promises of the second advent and what that means to us. No more sorrow, no more pain. But it also reminds us that in the waiting, there's a mission to be accomplished. There's something to be done. He's invited us to do the very thing he did, which is to seek and save the lost. And during Christmas, people get a taste of the first Advent, but they often never think about the second. They get a taste of the festivities, the joy. That there's, there's a teaser, if you will. But in our lives and how we live the whole rest of the year is what is going to preach Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. One fellow said it this way, that you and I may be the only Bible that any other person will read. So what do they read when they read you? What I hope is that you reflect him. You reflect his goodness, his joy, his kindness. Reflect the fact that no longer does God hold sin against you. That means you're his favorite. And he wants to pour out his goodness on you. Not because you've done well, not because you're always doing it right, but because he loves you and he wants to bless you. Would you receive that good gift from your heavenly father during this Christmas season? Let me pray for you. So Jesus, we come and say thank you, Lord, as always. Um, not just for that Baby in a manger, all oh, that's beautiful, Lord, and we love it, Lord. But for also what you did on the cross, Lord, the true testament of love, that no greater love has this, and a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus, that's what you do. You said, "I no longer call you servants; I want to call you friends." Lord, could we understand that this morning? Could we allow you to be our friend? Could we get past the religiosity and the foolishness of tradition, Lord? And could we could we just be in a real relationship with you? where you can talk to us, you can dream in us, you can remind us of who we are and, Lord, who you are. And we can walk in the fullness of the mission you've given us to preach this great good news to people who are lost and dying and are without you. Lord, we long to see people come to know you. Lord, do that in this next year through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got some, uh, some uh, words of knowledge up here. We do this <clears throat> often. Um, again, if you're new, it's maybe new to you. But what we do is we just put these up here, pray ahead of time, and say, Lord, is there something that you want to say to people who show up here today, and also people who would watch this online, and say, are these these words resonating with you? If they are, God's trying to get your attention. We'd love to pray with you and pray into that word, and maybe help explain a little bit about what those mean, uh, some of those things that God said. So if that's you, And it resonates with you. Would you come forward? We'll have our prayer ministry team going ahead and come up here now. But come on up and receive prayer about some of these things or something altogether different, whatever's in your heart. We'd love to pray with you and minister with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, wonderful Christmas holiday, and we'll see you next Sunday for New Year's.